podcasts and visit us at vox404.com. Enjoy the show. Okay, true or false? Peter Dinklage has a good British accent. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I definitely back him. All right, let's listen. Don't leave me alone with these people. I'm sorry. I've begun the feast a bit early, and this is the first of many courses. I didn't pick you for a hunter. You're the greatest in the land. My spear never misses. <laughs> I just... Never forget what you are. <laughs> the rest of the world will not. Wear it like armor, and it can never be used to hurt you. What the hell do you know about being a bastard? All dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes. Why'd you read so much? Oh, Jon Snow. And see, he has a real British accent. I can't, I just, yeah. it cracks me up. I think it's because I know Peter Dinklage is American. Yeah. So it, it, it's like when, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch tries to do, and well, I think he doesn't try. He succeeds. He does a, an excellent uh, American accent in Doctor Strange. But I yeah, just. I thought so as well. I thought you nailed it as well. Yeah. I just can't. It, it throws me because I love, I love Benedict Cumberbatch. And when he when he tries to do this accent in doctor strange i'm like no that's that's not you that's not you i don't i don't like it it's it's off-putting but peter dinklage british ac- british accent well is it is it british or english it's english yeah for sure so you have an english accent i like that way better than than british cuz you know it's all oh, jolly old england you know whatever culturally I mean, that was my first exposure when it was, you know, Monty Python. Why is it Great Britain now? Where did, where did Great Britain come from? I mean, I know why it's the UK. It's the, you know, the United Kingdom, you know, England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, right? Uh, yes, I'm pretty sure. I can't remember. Yeah, so Great Britain is a union of just three countries in the UK. So Great Britain covers England, Scotland, and Wales. And then the UK is all of that, plus Northern Ireland and the British Islands as well. So when did they, when did they do away with England? So they haven't done away with England. Um, it is a country. You know, so, how, so how wrong do we get it? How wrong do we Americans get it? Probably most of the time. Yeah, I think it's fairly confusing because from an outside, people just say United Kingdom and they think that's a country when really it's made up of, the United Kingdom is made up, yeah, as I said, made up of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and the Isles and everything. And then within that, there's Great Britain, which is a union of England, Scotland and Wales, which are then their own countries. So it's uh, very confusing. Um, so there's no wrong answers. I live in the UK, I live in Great Britain, and I live in England. So that's interesting. Now what yeah. about what about London and London Town? Because I've heard a few London Town? Yeah, I've I've heard uh there's a conspiracy theory that something something like uh 
how the Vatican is its own country and Washington, D.C. is its own country. There's, I've heard, just murmurings that there's London and London Town, and London Town is similar to its, to like its own entity, like the Vatican and Washington, D.C. Have you heard of anything like that? Yes, I think the thing that people might be getting on is the city of London. That's what it's called. And it's its own... uh, The city of of London is its own ceremonial county within London. And it has its own, like, council and laws and stuff inside there. Don't you think it's bizarre that, that governments behave that way? There's a lot of conspiracy with, uh, with Washington, D.C. and how it has used the Department of Motor Vehicles and, and driver's licensing to you peddle its influence into every state of, of the union and that ordinarily there uh, would be certain laws that wouldn't apply to you legally in your in your state because uh the federal government doesn't have that authority but since you signed up for a driver's license you have consented to following these extra laws that wouldn't ordinarily apply to you it's uh it's it's just a bizarre sort of twisting of the legal system. And then there's a whole sect of people that uh, they call themselves. Oh God, what, what's it called? Uh, state, uh, state citizens. I'm getting it wrong, but the, the point being that they will, they will go to court to fight against being uh, ticketed for not having a driver's license or not having uh, car insurance and they they have all of these constitutional statutes that they point to that say no see this means that i don't have to do this and this and i don't have to follow all of these laws and i mean these are the kind of people that live at the top of a mountain and order everything oh, through through is amazon this, uh, is this the sovereign citizen people yes 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 that's what it's called that's what it's called oh i know all about this this is funny do they have it? Or is there a is there a group of people? Is there anything similar like this in uh, in the UK, in Britain, in jolly old England? I don't know. I don't. I'm not going to say for sure, but I'm going. I will say this: there are more examples of sovereign citizens that I've seen in America than there are in the UK. In the UK the laws have kind of been the same for hundreds of years. And so there's not many people that can really go, well, uh, there was this constitution back in the day or different kinds of laws back in the day that I can rely on. And also, I I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what's going on. People just tend to, uh, people just tend to obey most of the normal regulations in the UK. They don't, they don't, they don't seem to uh, make a big fuss about, having or not having a driver's license I and don't know. there's there's also uh i think that kind of ties into the same sort of conspiracy where people claim that there's two constitutions 
One is the Constitution of the United States of America. And then the other one is the Constitution for the United States of America. And this was supposedly, you know, according to the conspiracy theory, this was to turn the United States from a country into a corporation. And then that's where all of these, this is where all the groundwork was laid for the federal reserve system and, and central banking. And it's really interesting because as the story goes, and this is probably a mostly inaccurate generalization, the uh, Rothschilds, you know, creators of the, or I, I, well, I should say creators of the modern central banking system came to Woodrow Wilson in uh, 1910 or something like that. And we're trying to sell him on this central banking federal reserve system. And, you know, he was the president at the time, Woodrow Wilson. And he said, uh, you know, he balked. He didn't want to do it. And they came back and said, look, there's going to be this terrible economic crash. If you don't, you know, you're, you're heading toward this terrible, uh, what ended up being the Great Depression. And they said, oh, but if you sign up with us for this central banking system and you let us do this completely insane process where we print your money for you and then sell it to you with interest, then we'll somehow avoid this entire depression so i think on uh december 23rd 1913 when most of congress and most of the senate was gone for the christmas holiday he signed the federal reserve act then we had the great depression and we had world war one even though that was supposed to be the whole point of getting you know this central banking thing started it was just a it was just a ruse. And now central banking is there. There's another uh, conspiracy theory that ties in with that that says, oh, it was sometime it was sometime before 9-11. And there's actually a. a doc, I don't know if you'd call it a documentary <laughs> and I, I'd probably like a 90 minute conspiracy theory movie. It would be better, a better way to describe it. It's called Zeitgeist. I don't know if you're familiar. There's like three different versions of it now. One of the points that it, it makes. Wh- what's that? It rings a bell. It rings a bell. I'm not sure though. <coughs> um, one, but one of the points it makes is there were something like seven countries at the time that I watched this that didn't have a central banking system. And they were like, they were countries like uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and the countries that we have been bombing the shit out of for the last several decades. And I think it even went back further and showed that like Vietnam didn't have a central bank before the 60s. And uh, I think Cuba was one of them. And but the point being all of these countries that we've had these lasting conflicts with were all countries that didn't have central banking systems at the time, suggesting that the world's 
the world's sto- stormtroopers are the American military. And it's uh, to kind of tie it back in to the, the Vatican and the city of London and Washington, D.C., it's sort of set up to uh, relate that the Americans, or, or I should say Washington, D.C., will be the world's army, the city of London will be the world's bank, and the Vatican will be the world's... I'm not sure about the Vatican. I want to say the world's religion. Um, but <laughs> it certainly doesn't seem like that is going all that particularly well. Yeah, not in the Western world anyways. Maybe in uh, South America. And that just that brings me back to this concept that the people pushing for this, you know, they're in their 80s now they weren't prepared to deal with the internet. They weren't prepared to control the way the information is shared. But now it's wrapped around into this propaganda tool. And we just, uh, yeah. we just went through a bunch of, uh, or, or I should say, well, you know, whatever. This, this idea of Safe supply. Or oh, here we go. Or safer supply is the biggest piece of government propaganda that I've ever heard. It's very sad, isn't it? And it well, and it was like you said, there was no or there is hardly any coverage. I mean, I, I was hoping so when you uh when you first turned me on to it I thought uh, I, I hadn't heard anything about it and then yeah. I started looking up a few podcasts and this was the most I don't know Definitely the most interesting, but also the most obviously propaganda. And I was really hoping that I would be able to find something with Dr. Drew. Are you familiar with Dr. Drew? No. So he's like, I don't know. He would probably hate to be described as a celebrity doctor because he is board certified. He still practices which is more than you can say for a lot of other celebrity doctors. I mean, he's not like a Dr. Phil. I mean, when, when you hear Dr. Drew and Dr. Phil, you would think, oh, you know, kind of same guy. But no, he's a, he has a li- at least a little bit more credibility than Dr. Phil. But his uh, specialty is addiction medicine. And I was really hoping as I was uh, digging into this subject that I would find some interview with him, you know, rebutting a lot of the claims that are being made here. But I'm really familiar with his work. I don't, I wouldn't say he's a a role model, but I've been listening to his content since I was probably 12 years old. It's too young. 
too young to be listening to his stuff, but nevertheless, this uh, associate professor, and I did dig a few things up on her, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology, so she's not actually a a medical doctor. She has a, a doctorate. Uh, but she's a doctor of sociology and she will, will, will listen to a few. I, I took this 30 minute interview, 28 minute interview and distilled it down to about seven minutes. I think the best clips. So what I want to do is go through, I'll, I'll let her, this is Dr. Lindsay Richardson. I'll let her explain what safe supply is, and then uh, we will rebut, and uh, it should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Safe supply or safer supply is really a response to our current context in which the street drug market is incredibly toxic and the main driving force behind our current levels of overdose, which are killing people at unprecedented rates. And so safe supply or safer supply is a broad term that refers to the provision of drugs of known purity and potency. So we know what is in the drug. We know how strong it is. Safe supply has as its primary goal to separate people from that toxic drug supply where potency and purity are totally unknown. And it's seen as one of the primary ways to effectively address the overdose or drug poisoning crisis. And so it first started as an initial response to the pandemic in April 2020, uh, where having these dual public health crises was anticipated to have really... So firstly, it started as... It it started right when the pandemic was getting started, which Mm -hmm. makes my conspiracy spider senses tingle. Because in my very paranoid schizophrenic opinion, <laughs> I'm not really a paranoid schizophrenic. <laughs> That's what one would say. That, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I believe you. Don't worry. I believe you. You're so right, though. You're so right. <laughs> <laughs> but the pandemic is rolling out. And this, in, in my crazy opinion, I, I wouldn't say it's my honest opinion. It's my crazy opinion. Because the pharmaceutical industry, the healthcare industry, now years ago when I dug into, when I was actually around the time when I was like first discovering conspiracy theories, like post 9-11, and I was watching this Zeitgeist movie, it was talking about these big budget industries and it was more about the military industrial complex in that context. But what I was, what I looked up, but one of the first things I researched was the size of the healthcare industry globally. And the number that I saw was 15 trillion, the biggest industry on the planet by, by a long shot, $15 trillion. Now, if you go back and try to find something like that, it's, it's been a while since I looked, but I think the number that I saw was about half of that. So somebody is fudging numbers. But then I get into think, thinking about things like healthcare and diet and, and the Hippocratic Oath and, 
hypocrisy, uh, hypocrisy, Hippocrates, one of the first, you know, medical doctors, you know, from, you know, ancient Greece or Rome or both. And he said, let your food be your medicine and your medicine will be your food. And it's really interesting if you take that to heart and you look at the way medicine, at least Western medicine, is administered, there's nothing about diet. I heard a girl on a podcast yesterday talking about Crohn's disease, which is one of the easiest diseases to treat with diet because it's largely a result of inflammation. And inflammation is tremendously controllable through things like, you know, you... you eat gluten-free, you know, you don't, don't eat wheat, don't eat foods with a lot of carbs, don't eat a, a lot of sugar, don't eat things that are acidic. But her doctor tells her that there's no way that you can control this in, you know, with any other measures aside from this injection that you're going to give yourself once every two months. So I see this change in the culture where we're moving from the fat, ugly Americans, and I don't know what it, it's like, you know, what, what diet and exercise, how it's accepted culturally in the UK, but over here, people are getting more serious about it. And I would say in, in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years, we're learning that, no, you really should be eating eggs every day and red meat is fine. And what you should be cutting out is all the bread and the sugar. And this is leading to a lot fewer health problems and a lot less chronic disease. So Big Pharma has to ramp up its efforts to increase its profit margins because, as you know, being a businessman yourself, in this capitalist economic system, you have to show quarterly growth or you're not doing your job. So we can continue. The extreme consequences. And since then, there have been 28 federally funded safer supply pilot programs across Canada that involve the medical prescription of sort of substitution drugs for people with substance use disorder. Substitution drugs. It's the same drug. And she gets into that even more. So she wants, so she's saying, oh, we're going to, we're going to go on, we're going to ride the coattails of this COVID pandemic and trick the public into allowing their tax dollars to be spent on addictive drugs to give junkies. Right. There are also a couple of community-based initiatives. Uh, those of these aren't currently legal and they operate at a relatively small scale. Most safe supply is operating through a medical model. And one of the things that's really important to know about that medical model is that it isn't really accessible to people without a substance use disorder diagnosis. And so we know that a significant proportion of people who are being poisoned by the toxic drug supply don't have that diagnosis. And so, you know, medically prescribed safe supply helps some people, but not all people that need access to drugs that have known potency and purity. If the person is eligible and the physician prescribes safe supply, that person would then take that prescription to a pharmacy. And so the... So a junkie goes to the doctor and says, hey, I want to sign up for these free drugs. With the state of 
the healthcare industry. I mean, I've heard it said that uh, big pharmaceutical wants to lobby governments to make it standard practice for patients to just see a nurse who will write them prescriptions. So they want to cut the doctor completely out of the equation. Just get him in the door to somebody who will write him a prescription. Can you believe that? It's, it's, uh, I don't know. I wish I had words for it, really. No kidding. Person with the prescription gets a pharmaceutical-grade drug that is intended to substitute the street drugs that they'd previously been accessing. The community-level impact data is really in its earlier preliminary stages. But what we know from sort of those preliminary sort of pieces of information that are coming is that safe supply is starting to reduce people's reliance on unregulated and toxic drugs. So for example, the BC Coroner Service uh, released data recently that showed that prescribed safer supply medications have not contributed to any fatal drug poisonings or overdoses in BC. I and, am and that's that's the only that's the only statistic that this program is is being effective that yeah. people the fact that they're yeah the fact that they're not using you know drugs that are made in china and instead they're using drugs that are made in china from a large pharmaceutical company yeah that's the only <laughs> thing that they've come out with this it's fucking outrageous they've literally just taken the drug problem and turned it from illegal drugs on the street to legal drugs made by somebody else with the government's permission it's literally it's anything. It's literally, and I, I, I wrote this note down. It's literally big pharma becoming sm small-time drug dealers. I mean, they're literally. they're as big as they can get, and and what they're what they want to do is they want their cut in the black market. So have they're you seen the vending machines. Have you seen the vending machines? No, no, I don't think we have anything like that around here. This is what they're putting them in uh, British Columbia, in America, in, in Canada. And I think, I'm not sure if I edited that part of the inner, I, I think actually I did because she, uh, she's very, I don't, I don't know if she's, uh, if she really believes what she's saying or if she's just being, you know, trying to be a, uh, I don't know, a good, a good soldier. She's an associate professor. Okay. So that means, what does that mean? When I, like, when I hear something like that, when I hear this sort of propaganda coming from a person, and then I realize that that person's just an associate professor at the university of British Columbia, I think, Hmm. So she's, she hasn't hit a ceiling yet. She's looking for a promotion. Maybe she wants to go work for Pfizer or maybe she wants to get into some uh, regulatory agency like the, the FDA or the Canadian equivalent because that's where all of this stuff is, is happening. And that's actually where this podcast came from. Uh, it's, from uh, it's called the Big Story Podcast and it's a Canadian institution. Oh, Canada. You better watch out. 
frustrated yeah. about the politicization of this public health issue. And, you know, we need to recognize that there are political dimensions here. But a lot of the conversation doesn't address the broader context of what safer supply is for, which is to separate people from the toxic street drug supply. And she says over and over again, the toxic drug supply, the toxic drug supply, the toxic yeah, street sounds, drugs. She sounds like uh she sounds like a fucking politician. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sound like an expert. She sounds like a fucking marketing person. And I noticed as and I'm I'm sure, I mean anybody with a good ear can listen to this and hear that it's chopped up. But I think it needs to be said that a lot of this is just the way the interview ran from like the first I don't even know if I've if we've gotten into the first edit. There are parts it, where it you wasn't can, really yeah it wasn't really an interview it was more like a fucking advertisement yeah yeah and for for trudeau's <clears throat> government's new policy i i kept one clip in here where the interviewer quote unquote jumps in and like helps support her argument just Horrendous. to just to illustrate like it's it's a propaganda piece right and a lot of the criticism has also relied on the anecdotes of a few physicians. These are drugs that have been prescribed for medical purpose for a long time, and diversion has always happened in the prescription of psychoactive substances. So that's sort of the first thing to think about. The argument there is, well, if we don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Like, we're just, we're just making it we're just getting rid of the black market. That's, that's what she's saying there. Like, oh, people are always going to be selling these pills. People are always going to be taking these pills. So why not just let us do it? I think it's a massive injustice because how many extremely poor Colombian families are going to lose a job out of this? You know, <laughs> I would have thought the government of Canada really cares about minorities and so if they care about minorities, they're they really continue the black market as much as possible. They are. They are taking food out of the mouths of the children of small time drug dealers. Absolutely. And but also probably the Chinese scientists that are because have have you heard that? I mean, not to get too off track here, we were really rolling through this uh interview or mock interview. But have you heard that there are teams of Chinese scientists going into Mexico and setting up fentanyl labs for Mexican drug cartels? Yeah, I'm not surprised by that, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, it, from a business standpoint, like, it makes total sense. You're shortening the supply chain. I mean, that's, that's good yeah, business. Yeah, and like uh, most... Most heroin and, and fentanyl in North America comes from China. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that some of those drugs are actually legal in China. Um, and, and so it's completely legal for them to make it there. It strikes me as a total Chinese effort. Like, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because most pharmaceuticals are manufactured in China. Because yeah. that's just the cheapest place to manufacture them. And then that, of course. that also connects to the American, uh, I, I don't know, evacuation, surrender of Afghanistan. Because Afghanistan, one of the things uh, 
one of the arguments that I heard about why uh, why China wanted to get into Afghanistan so bad and why they, you know, bent the ear of Joe Biden is a nice way to say it. Basically, why they paid him off was so that he would recklessly pull out of Afghanistan, leave Bagram Air Force Base so that China could move in, not for the lithium and the rare earth min- minerals, which... Afghanistan has a lot of, but for the opium fields so that they can continue to manufacture their fentanyl and other opioids. And now they're lobbying other governments to allow them to legally sell these addictive drugs. I mean, these are addictive drugs, not, not to everybody. Like I'm one of those people who doesn't really like opioids don't move the needle for me. You know, I've had surgery a couple of times. Unfortunately, I've had to take some Vicodin, some Percocet, you know, some other pills that are very dangerous and it just doesn't really do anything for me. I mean, it, maybe it kills the pain a little bit, but it's nothing like what I've heard other people describe as, you know, the best feeling that they've ever had. And that that's how these people get addicted. And we need to mm. be working on getting these people unaddicted, not just getting them ad- yeah. more dependent on pharmaceutical companies. That's what this is about. They want more yeah. people dependent on the pharmaceutical industry. And that's just, go just ahead. to touch on, uh, just to touch on the Afghanistan thing. A funny revelation about this is that um, recently Afghanistan has cut down all their poppy fields. <laughs> right. No, I, you're right. I did hear about that. That was a Taliban not, thing. Yeah, they've like totally got rid of it. I don't really know why, but they have done that. And that was one of the first things, I, I, if, if I remember correctly, um, that was one of the first things that the Taliban did when they got into power because they recognized... I mean, they're not just the stupid cave-dwelling savages that they're depicted as in in American Mm. media. I don't know about British media. But they knew. These these poppy fields are attracting the wrong kind of attention. But who knows what China is doing there now? Extending their influence. It's also important to think about how inciting panic around diversion without a broad understanding of oh and i should say when when she says diversion she's talking about uh basically the illegal distribution of of the pharmaceuticals so you know some pharmacy tech at the end of the night loads up a couple extra bottles with uh you know oxycontin and sells them on the street for 20 bucks a pill that's diversion why that diversion is happening is really, it's not on, right? There's a recent study that has come out uh, that was published by uh, colleagues at the end of April that talks about how hydromorphone, which is one of the main opioids that is prescribed in safe supply pilots, is not sufficient for people, right? It might be that the diversion is happening because- No shit. They, they want the good stuff. They want the good drugs. They don't want this. Why do you think methadone clinics failed? Because it's not as good. They want the good stuff. That's why, according to the BC coroner, nobody's overdosing on these safe supply pills because it's not the good stuff. 
They want the fentanyl. They want that good high. They don't want the crap. And that's why Safe Supply is even in the discussion because Big Pharma wants to get in there too. It's like, oh yeah, you don't want hydromaphone or whatever it's called. You want Percocet. You want the hard stuff. You want the stuff that you can smash up into powder and snort up your nose, right? All right, buddy, I got you. Because we don't care about getting you off drugs. We don't care about helping you improve your life. We just want our peace. We need more profits. Because we haven't got the right drug that's being prescribed yet, or that drug doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. What we're trying to do with Safe Supply is create as much distance as possible between people who use and the toxic drug supply. The toxic drug supply. And what that means is that we need to constantly be thinking about what are the best ways to do that. Well, clearly, clearly she believes the best way is to just give all these people the drugs. And are there, is there going to be like a a card slot so that you can swipe your debit card at, at these drug vending machines? No, no, no. It's all been paid for. It's all been paid for with your tax dollars. Just like the vaccine. It's why the, why the governments wanted to push these vaccines, at least in America. And this is why I don't put my stuff on YouTube. <laughs> because the vaccines were owned partially by the government. So the government subsidized these, pharmace- these pharmaceutical companies by buying up all of these doses of the vaccine, which they make money on because they own the patents. You know, the National Institute of Health owns patents. The National Institute of uh, Allergens and Infectious Diseases owns the patents. The FDA owns patents. The CDC owns patents to these drugs. So every time they buy these drugs and these vaccines with your tax dollars, they get a cut. And the heads of these agencies like Anthony Fauci, I think they just changed the law to say you can only make $150,000 in royalties a year. Probably because of these very things. But Big Pharma doesn't care about that. They just want to keep those profit margins going up yet exactly what the impacts are. It's a bit outside our comfort zone to provide psychoactive drugs as a safety measure. Because we know it's wrong. We saw similar hot button things happening when we were in the process of cannabis legalization. Mm -hmm. Safe injection sites. Safe injection sites, most harm reduction measures. We've seen this before. And this is how it goes incrementally. First, it Mm -hmm. was First, it was cannabis legalization. Okay, cannabis legalization. Wear us down a little bit. Corrupt those morals a little bit. Now, safe injection sites. Oh, hey, rem- hey, you thought it was cool to let people smoke weed with no consequences, right? Okay, well, let's, I mean, maybe we let people, sh- they're not talking about insulin, not safe injection sites for insulin. <laughs> they're talking about methamphetamine and heroin. Right. It's what's known in the, the sort of Canadian public policy literature around substance use as panic and indifference. Hmm. You have these attitudes, you have significant controversy, it captures the national political attention. And Wonder for example, why. in the case of cannabis, this has really receded because when cannabis legalization happened, you know, the rollout had predictable 
you know, bumps in the road, Mm -hmm. but the sky did not fall. The MySafe project is a what do you think just about that? There. Yeah, pause there. Yeah, yeah. I want did, the actual did, fuck, bro. Did the sky? You're did talking... the sky not fall? Did the sky not fall, buddy? Go for it. This yo, the sky did not fall because it's fucking weed. And, okay. Well, and also because the media didn't cover it that way. No, like no one cares about weed. Like most, you know, people in Canada. You know, like a lot of my family is from Canada, right? So, well, for most people, weed isn't psych. Uh, isn't um weed is it's not super addictive like it's not physically no one no one's no one's going to assault you to get their next fix of weed no one's going to like kill you steal from you the you know these people that are on fentanyl they have to be like crouched over in a position because of how much kidney pain it puts them in i mean these are this is a different level of drug this is not the same thing this is the difference between like taking aspirin because oh i've got a little bit of a headache to like, uh, you know, taking some serious prescription opioids. I mean, that's the difference. It's like, would you take aspirin for your headache? And oh, if legalized aspirin to take it all the time, no problem. Or we, or, or would you take, you know, Vicodin for a fucking uh, headache? And let's just let everyone take that. Well, you I think can that's take, the only way people can understand. You can take aspirin, and and drive a car. You know, you can right. take you can take aspirin and not lose your house. I'm I'm of the opinion that it's it's the person that is the addict, and I mean because I've I've said before I've experimented with hard drugs, and here I am today non non hard drug user. But some people, I mean, a a really great friend of mine back in Portland. As far as I know, I mean, now that I am about to recount the story, he could have been lying to me. As far as I know, he just liked smoking weed. And he let his power get shut off because he liked smoking weed so much that he would rather spend his money on weed instead of paying his electric bill. Now, is that a problem with weed or is that a problem with the person? In my opinion, it's the problem with the person because people get addicted to porn. People get addicted to gambling. Not to mention heroin and, and meth and these, these other things that really ruin people's... I mean, gambling and sex addictions ruin people's lives as, as well. But the point being that a, a person with an addictive personality can get addicted to anything. Yeah, Definitely. Definitely. Just to take a counterpoint, though, when talking about a drug like fentanyl, it's a hundred times more potent than morphine. So I don't care who the fuck you are. If you take fentanyl, you are going to get fucked up. You are going to get to the point where, you know, because they they do it not because they're addicted. Right. They they have to get their next fix because the withdrawal is so insane off that drug. And I'm not familiar. I'm yeah. not familiar with fentanyl. I just know that it's that it's really strong and really bad. And yeah, I mean, could you imagine taking morphine and being like, holy fuck? And could you imagine then taking fentanyl, which is a hundred times more powerful than morphine? I well, mean, yeah, how and do you even like imagine that? I mean, I have I have to at least concede that there is a toxic drug supply. However, it's, 
this is being presented like we're doing all of these benevolent things. Like we just want to help these yeah. people. And maybe she believes that. But yeah, but I th I think the end goal is to get people off drugs, not get people off the toxic supply of drugs. And they're thinking that getting people be, off yeah. the toxic supply of drugs will get them off drugs altogether. But all you're doing is you're taking away the fear of overdose and giving them a way to take drugs in a way that they can never die, never have the fear of death and ultimately get off, you know, without any risk of criminality. You're completely normalizing and making the whole area, you know, area of taking drugs safe. You're making taking hard drugs as safe as smoking weed. And that is going to not deter anyone from taking it. Because if there are no inherent risks, why wouldn't you take it as an addict? Well, yeah, you're, you're removing the, the fear of withdrawal. Yeah. Like, oh, the I fear can... fear of death as well. You're taking away the yeah, fear yeah. of death. Oh shit! I'm not going to take fentanyl I, or the, or whatever this drug is because it could kill me. And now they're like, "Well, I know the exact dosage of fentanyl that this vending machine is going to give me, and I take it this much, I get high and I'm fine." Well, and the the thing about prescription medications, as I've heard it explained to me, I have no real experience with prescription medications or abusing prescription medications, I should say, is when you get addicted to a prescription medication at first you're abusing the drug you're getting high you're feeling great then as your body develops tolerance to the substance you have to take those pills just to feel normal you take the pills so that you don't suffer the withdrawals so that you can continue to function in society do you think that this program is going to have any real effect on on people becoming not addicted to drugs and do you think it's going to help homelessness at all no i, I honestly it just brings it out into the it just makes it if anything more visible to the general public and one of the most alarming things that i heard from the podcast and i'm sure you'll play the clip later but they talk about the fact that they they just don't know any information about the effects on the general public yeah and several so they times are willing yeah they are literally willing to do a three-year pilot program to just let a bunch of homeless people cracked out of their minds on fentanyl into the public with no criminal recourse whatsoever and we've already seen a rise of what they call random killings which are killings where with no motive from people cracked out on drugs people now you know if someone's in front of your storefront you know your barber or whatever you can't get rid of them because taking the drugs is now legal. You can't move them away. So they just do it in the open. Now you're removing the rights of normal people that aren't fucked up on it, fentanyl or heroin. So w w where's the win here? You're giving more rights to people that are messed up on drugs, which you need to get off drugs, and you're removing the rights of normal people just trying to live their lives. And they're also handicapping any ability of future ad administrations to rectify the problem because yeah. all of these people that are using this toxic drug supply, which she keeps bringing up, will just go from being dependent on the black market drugs and go to being dependent on the government sanctioned drugs. And if ever a president or prime minister comes along 
to try and reverse this terrible decision, it's going to be unbelievable backlash because Big Pharma wants their cut. This is all about, this is not about helping people. They, they bring this lady out to sell it to us as if it is helping people. And we should just, we should get through the last minute of this, uh, of this interview before I continue ranting. Sure. Bit of a, a, a visual focal point where people are like, you know, they're selling drugs and vending machines. What is the world coming to? And we also know that not all things work for all people, right? This is not a one size fits all situation. You know, one thing that we really know does not work is our current approach. We have tens of thousands of people who have died because the drug supply is toxic. And so if we're going to effectively address the overdose crisis, it's going to require a safe, regulated, accessible drug supply. It's going to require that we address the social and economic driver, drivers of drug-related harm. And it's going to... But just, just like the small, or just like big pharma, small-time drug dealers don't want their customers dying because of the drugs that they give away. That's one less customer. Yeah, of course require that we have a comprehensive, accessible, and culturally appropriate system of treatment, harm reduction, and social care. I think there are sort of two overarching questions around safe supply that we need to pay attention to. And the first is, do we have the right drugs? Right. Is what we are trying to do with safe supply to separate people from the toxic drug supply and get as much distance between people who use drugs and that toxic supply as possible? So have we chosen the right drugs to try and create that distance? And do people have sufficient access to those drugs? So it's set up. That's the end of it. It's set up in the same way that medical marijuana was was first legislated, at least here in the States. You go in, you see your doctor, and you tell them, whatever. I'm addicted to heroin. I need some safe supply. That doctor, I guarantee, is going to be under tremendous pressure to say, yes, here's your prescription. Here's your heroin vending machine card. Have a blast. And it's, it's just another step going from, and I mean, and I'm in favor of cannabis legalization for the same reasons that you mentioned. What's the big deal? It's not physically addictive. Sure, somebody that is, you know, an addictive personality could become addicted to it. I've known those people. But we need yeah. to be working to get people off of drugs to decrease their dependence on drugs, not give them a safe supply of drugs to continue using over and over again. Absolutely. Or, or at least get them off drugs which affect so many people around them other than themselves as well. You know, you know, someone that's like on weed is not going to go around and start stabbing people randomly in the street. No. Just to get more weed or just because they're so whacked out on weed. That's just not something that happens. Oh, I've never heard of that happening. No, no, it doesn't. But you, what you hear all the time is, oh, this person was randomly stabbed in the street in uh, Edmonton because they were completely off their tits on fentanyl. 
or <laughs> crack cocaine or whatever. You know, so you're, you're like, okay, so which one do I legalize? Do I legalize the one where people don't stab up people? All right, great. And I'll legalize the one where people do go and stab up people because they need to get their next high or because they're not in the right mind. And Maybe we should have safe stabbing spaces where people line up and um, it, you just take your turn getting stabbed either by a politician because that's what they're doing or you get stabbed by an obvious crack addict that doesn't know what they're doing and you could just get it in early right next to the hospital and then get tret. Maybe that's the way we go with it. Oh, and the, the thing that disturbs me is the the obvious control. So we have this, what was a half hour podcast that we just went through. I think it was about seven minutes long. Hmm. With no no sponsors aside from, you know, Canadian broadcasting. So, I mean, you could equate this to state-sponsored propaganda. But it's not really, it's not really sponsored by the state. <clears throat> These... No, it's, it's sponsored by the liberal culture, I'm going to say. Yeah, I would agree with that, 100%. And this is all, these are products of uh, the massive hedge funds and, and big banks that are pushing all of this impact in investment, this ESG, environmental social governance, mm. which is just, it's, it's a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's being disguised as these benevolent efforts sold to us by people like Dr. Lindsay Richardson, when it's really just about increasing profit margins or worse, uh, corrupting Western society, which I mean, whether that's a, a primary objective or not is happening as a result of these policies that are being sponsored and encouraged by lobbyists and campaign donors. Yeah, I feel like this is like a, I feel like the liberal area of Canada were given the choice between the blue pill, you know, to wake up and not go down the road they're, they're going down and the red pill where it's like, let's double down and continue our delusioned reality. And they have taken a big handful of red pills and stuffed them down their gullet in one go because this is just some next level shit and their own their own uh, management of these laws right contradicts themselves okay and it's very simple the decriminalization of these drugs uh is completely uh decriminalized in all public spaces apart from schools and places where there are are caregivers of children. Now, why the fuck would you do that? What's the problem with having people on these drugs around schools or places where they care for children? Is it perhaps because these people are not safe to be around children? 100%. They just admitted it in their own laws. So if they're not safe to be around children, why are they safe to be around the general public? Or children in general public. They are contradicting themselves in their own laws. 
Well, I think it's, it's completely it's, outrageous. I think it's because, and, and I don't know the legal system of Canada really at all, but I would say it's because they can have the, the those areas are more helpless to to push back because they're uh you know they're public spaces or you know mm. public sponsored spaces might be a better way to say it when you get into the private sector at least in in the states there's more there there's more rights there's more uh you know you you have more legal avenues to push back against that kind of thing but there's also i mean like Portland and and maybe the entire state of of Oregon has legalized or or decriminalized all substances. Why do you think that that hasn't been the approach in in Canada? Why would they go why are they going safe supply versus just total decriminalization you know amsterdam style i don't know because i think there's this concerted effort now they they touch on it where it's more of a political thing for them because and it wasn't that interesting yeah it's it's they touch on it is it's it's not about it's not about decriminalizing the drugs for them it's destigmatizing the using of drugs in order to try and get people off drugs and so they're going one step further by decriminalizing it and obviously offering, you know, alternative or just the straight drugs themselves. But it's this whole PR concerted effort, which um, is being advertised to everyone. So I think as well, you've got to look at it in two different ways where Oregon uh, decriminalized it and they don't have anywhere near the drug problem that Canada has. Whereas Canada has decided to do decriminalize and also, <laughs> you know, do all this stuff at the height of the worst point currently of the epidemic of the opioid crisis in Canada. So that's like, that's like pulling the trigger on the gun next to a big, you know, tank of gasoline on top of a nuclear reactor. You know, that's the level <laughs> that Canada's at. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I uh, I haven't been to Portland in a long time, and the the last time I went, I just stayed on the highways and drove right through. So I don't know the state uh, of the city on the ground, but I do know that I wouldn't be able to trust what the media was telling me about it. Yeah, because they're all sponsored by big pharma. And if they're not directly sponsored by Big Pharma, they're sponsored by companies where board members hold massive interest in Big Pharma or, or Big Oil or Big Coal. I've, I've done deep dives into the ownership of these major corporations and discovered that it's all, it, it, it's all interwoven. Like, and like this, this effort to... Uh, bring us around to, to green energy across the planet, you know, so that we don't all burn up in 12 years or whatever AOC said. A lot of pharmaceutical production it also is reliant on a lot of oil products. 
So how are we going to sustainably move to green energy while also enabling these big businesses to continue to parasitically suck the lifeblood out of the populace of the planet? It's not going to happen. It's, it's a pipe dream. And I think that's, it, it's just as important to point that out along with uh, how devastating it is to the earth. Not only, uh, I mean, not simply just through all of the, the, you know, diesel and oil, you know, petroleum products that are required to mine the minerals out of the ground but also just the damage that the mining itself does and, and how devastating it is on like the populations of the Congo where they're trying to mine cobalt out of the ground. And you see videos and pictures from these mines that aren't, they're not supposed to exist. They ban people from going in there with cameras and they ban journalists from covering these sort of situations because Apple and Tesla don't want you to know that they are sponsoring these these workforces that are literally just in a giant dirt pile. Children, eight years old, digging with spoons, trying to find some cobalt so that they can feed themselves. And yeah, I think this is a really good point because, you know, here in the Western world, we're more than happy to go to great lengths to be as green as possible and to be sustainable as possible. But there's no problem for people to suddenly outsource all of those problems to the third world or, you know, second uh, industrialization countries like Brazil, where they don't have the same laws. So people will buy things on Amazon from China and they will buy clothing that's cheap and they will rant on about, you know, getting energy saving light bulbs and all this crap when they have been made in countries where the laws that we have here and the sustainability quotas that we have here do not exist. So we just outsource all of our quote-unquote green issues to other nations. And then, and then these, these same big corporations that are enjoying these massive profits from exploiting this basically slave labor also have their fingers in the pockets of our politicians who will turn around and sponsor these same companies using our tax dollars while they force us to consume their products. Like, hey, yeah, absolutely. No more yeah, gas it's, cars, it's guys. Almost, uh, sorry, it's, it's almost the opposite of what happened in the 90s because in the 90s you had like a lot of cheap products, 90s and 80s, a lot of cheap products from like Japan. And America put a lot of restrictions on what could come into Japan, how much that could come into Japan. It's, but it's almost the opposite now, where they're almost encouraging um, the outsourcing of labor and products to other nations so that it's not made locally and the environmental or the such and such impact isn't registered here. Like here in the UK, we take all our recycled goods and some of it's recycled here, but most of it is just sold to Poland or sold to Africa, where it's it's either turned into something else very rarely, or it's just, you know, uh, put in a landfill over there. 
or burnt in incinerate in incinerators or something. So it's, it's completely ridiculous. So the corporations are making loads of money because if they don't have to make it in the US, if they don't have to make it in the UK, that serves them great because we're expensive. You know, us as people, we're expensive. You know, if you had to have me in a in a in a workshop, you know, you're going to be charging me like fifteen quid an hour, right? Compared to a Chinese person that's going to charge like you know a bowl of rice and a piece of tofu per hour or something like that. So yeah, twenty five cents. Yeah, that's it, and a pat on the back or something. Well, and this is why this is why a lot of the the corporations. I mean, a, a lot of everybody. I mean, I swear there was a time when uh, when Trump was in office that it it literally felt like it was Trump against the world. Now there's way too many moving parts, and there's way too yeah. much money in involved in the the status quo of global operations for me to believe that everybody just hate did hated Donald Trump because he was rude and you know brash and and sort of uh you know non-presidential you know having this unbecoming attitude no they all hated him in my opinion because he was doing things like placing massive tariffs on the imports of, of products coming from China that were sponsored by American companies. He would say, you know, if you want to sell your products to America without tariffs, well, then you need to bring your factories back to America. And he actually was semi-successful in doing that. And it was actually even made more obvious with the the covid pandemic and sort of waking everyone up to the realization that we're so reliant on china for everything when yeah. when something like this happens we have to have at least a plan b we can't just i mean and and now it's it's looking like there's going to be some i mean maybe there won't be any kind of conflict with china i i think the biden administration is cowardly uh, at best and uh, working hand in glove with China at worst. So I don't know if there would actually be a government sanctioned boycott or embargo or any kind of decoupling with China should they uh, decide to invade Taiwan. But uh, Anthony Blinken just went on uh it just did a press conference uh basically for china where he said oh, yeah. we don't we don't support taiwanese uh independence basically what? giving yeah basically giving china the green light to uh invade taiwan here's the clip i raised us concerns shared by a growing number of countries about the prc's provocative actions in the taiwan strait as well as in the south and east china seas on Taiwan, I reiterated the long-standing U.S. one-China policy. Uh, that policy has not changed. And it's not long-standing. The Taiwan Relations Act, the three joint communiques, the six assurances. We do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo. And he just blows right through it. We continue to expect... We don't, we don't support uh, Taiwanese independence. Like, no, 
Nobody pay attention. Nobody listen to that part. Just so bad. Mind blowing. So bad. Why is the US getting involved in internal Chinese politics? Well, see, Taiwan is independent from China for one reason or another. I haven't looked in to the history of that, but I know that I know the I know the history I know the history of it. Um it's essentially before the CCP was put together and the original government or the people that opposed the sort of what is the government now in China fled to the island of uh, I think it's uh, Taipei at that point and it's now called Taiwan and set up a, a, a different government a different style of government a more uh, republican government we'll say that much and, and so uh, they've yeah go ahead no no they, they're just uh, yeah they're just complete it's almost like uh, going to a completely different um, country um and Taiwan is probably more like the UK, really, or maybe like South Korea. You know that that similar level of uh, of of culture. If you look at like GDP per capita, it's completely different to China. China's like four thousand dollars. I think Taiwan is like eight thousand or something. So there, yeah, it's completely different. And of course, China doesn't want. China says that it's it's theirs, and they don't want to lose it. And they don't want to lose it because Taiwan is like insanely valuable um, to the whole world. Really valuable. And I've heard it described as, you know, uh, Taiwan is sort of America's semiconductor supply. And if if China invades... I would say that. If if China invades, then that gives China leverage over America just by being able to control the supply of of semiconductors. Not, I mean, not just to America, but to the entire world. And that's why that's I, only half true. That's only half true because sure, American propaganda. TS- <laughs> yeah, like the TSMC company has fabs in other places other than Taiwan. So, you know, it's their main base is in is in Taiwan. Um, but people forget there's like other companies as well, like Samsung, that's like the second or first largest producer of semiconductors on on earth. Well, and there's so semiconductor it, yeah. manufacturing in in the states too. I know of a few In the states, yeah. It, you know, and then don't forget China as well. I mean, China has global foundries, which is like one of the major ones. And then, of course, you've got companies like NVIDIA and other ones like that. I mean, just to compare GDP per capita, which is the only thing people should care about. Don't care about GDP. It's a fucking useless. GDP per capita is like how much a single person contributes to the economy on average. And in China, it's $12,500. So that's how much a single person on average contributes to the, to the overall economy. But in Taiwan, it's a completely different story. It's 32,800. Wow. So the reason why China hates talking about Taiwan as a separate entity is because for them to accept the fact that Taiwan is more successful than them, they have to accept the fact that their different style of government works better for them than it does you know, uh, internally. 
Well, and, and I would compare that to yeah. If you compare that to the US, the US has a fantastic GDP per capita. So anyone that's bearish on the US being like some shit country that doesn't have a, a good economy, you know, you guys are at seventy thousand US dollars per person. Wow. So each person in the US is worth seventy thousand dollars to the economy. And that's I pretty insane. I imagine also that uh, if China could absorb Taiwan, then that would also help their gdp per per capita or per person i i guess it i guess it would because they would absorb some of the intellectual property the only issue with this narrative and the reason why i don't think anyone should give a shit about this because people want china wants you to believe that they want to invade right um the taiwanese people just don't give a shit about any of this politics they just want to live their lives you know and just just get on with it um but what's interesting about uh, this situation is China does not really want to do this because the Taiwanese government has been investing heavily in defense, okay? And even if we take away the fact that they've done that, trying to do some kind of like island um, amphibious assault would be insanely difficult. Insanely difficult yeah. without raising the entire country to the ground and destroying any sort of like level of good. It'd be like Ukraine, you know, it'd be like saying, well, I want to take over Ukraine as Russia, you know, so I can capture all their um, intellectual property of their silicon uh, semiconductor manufacturing. And it'd be like, well, I've just gone and bombed all of it. So there's nothing left. <laughs> So that's like, so when people talk about it, I'm like, yeah, but they would literally have to bomb the whole place to even, that, that's why, that's why World War II, they never stepped foot here in England or in the UK because they had that body of water between them. Mm. You know, if it was, if Ukraine and Russia were separated by a body of water, like a big one, that would completely change the entire situation. So, you know, it, it'd be the same thing. Like China has, I would, they have the largest army on earth. They don't have a great army. You know, most of their weapons are made in China, so there's a good joke about that. <laughs> uh, you know. Well, and yeah, I've, I've also heard it say, I mean, like what, what you say about uh, the, just the difficulty of invading Taiwan, it, it appeals to my reason and, and to other things that I've heard. Um, but uh, Xi Jinping has told China to prepare for war. I mean, it, that was a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, people that claim to be insiders and, you know, that can kind of see what's going on or have sources that tell them what's going on is that the way that China is preparing for war doesn't appear that they're preparing to invade Taiwan because of the kind of equipment that they would need. Like you mentioned, amphibious vehicles, um, this, this person I, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't remember the name of the podcast that I heard it on. He said it looked more like they were preparing for war with America. And then he, he proceeded to recount this story of uh, some journalist, and this is where it gets pretty unbelievable for me, some journalist speaking to Chinese soldiers who told her that they were not, they're not, training for war against Taiwan they're training for war against Americans and that was presented as supposed to be this big bombshell to uh you know solidify 
the the fact that China is getting ready to to go to war with America. But the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear something like that is, well, that's just, I mean, how many times, how many drill sergeants and lieutenants told their troops that they're uh, training to go kill Taliban? Because that's, I mean, and even still, you know, we're still at war with the Middle East, whether it's uh, formally declared or not. You know, we want that oil. We want that opium. We want that strategic location. It was the same thing in the 80s with uh, uh, Russia and the Taliban. Like we, we were, uh, America was sponsoring the Taliban to fight against the Russians. And now here we are, are, I mean, we're up until just recently fighting against the Taliban ourselves. Not because we wanted the Taliban, we, we didn't fund them because we wanted them to be the ruler of Afghanistan. We funded them because we wanted them to push the Russians out so that we could move in there. And now through fifth generational warfare, China has forced us out so that they could move in because of its, you know, at, at, at the very least because of its strategic geography. But I completely agree China doesn't want to blow things up. They've been extremely successful, in my opinion, at this fifth generational warfare where they operate propaganda campaigns. They buy politicians. They cut deals with, uh, you know, Hunter Biden, which buys them an in to, you know, the vice president at the time and now the president himself so that they earn flexibility to do things like threaten Taiwan or at least convince the global population that it's going to be okay for China to go in there. And I, I mean, I don't know what you would call it. Unites Taiwan with China for their, their one, their one China policy. I mean, they've already done it to Hong Kong. Why would they stop? Why would they stop there? And why wouldn't again, they? Why again, w- like Hong Kong is uh, attached to them, you know, via land, and so really it was just a political thing. They didn't even need to roll in the the tanks for that. Which is really, I mean, like how how was how was Hong Kong even its own independent entity to begin with when they're connected? Oh, so it was owned by us, the UK. Oh, for like fifty years. And so we set up a government there and it was its own separate, you know, entity from, from China. And we had a contract with them for 50 years. Um, and I think it's not even lapsed yet. I think it's supposed to lapse. I can't, I, I can't remember. I, I won't say it is to say something wrong. Um, but I believe they started to, you know, encroach more as Xi Jinping got a bit more authoritarian. And, you know, this contract was, was wearing out soon. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, well, we did offer um, a great deal of um, English, uh, well, United Kingdom passports to anyone that wanted to escape uh, the Hong Kong um, regime, which is now really the Chinese regime. But I mean, just to touch on the Chinese military again, um, it's a lot like the Russian military where it's like a party army. So there's no real like head of, um, like in the US, you guys have a fantastic army. 
where there's, you know, command and control and there's like a single general at the top and, you know, decisions are, are filtered down through a, a long list. Whereas in the in the PLA, um, the People's Liberation Army, right, nice right. name. <laughs> uh, so benevolent. It's more like, yeah, exactly. It's more like they're like a bunch of regional military entities kind of stitched together. And these people, these regional sort of armies are run by friends and family and party sort of like uh, royalty. They're not run by people that are selected to do the job based on uh, any kind of merit. Um, So you throw them into a war situation, which China, again, has never seen. All right. So they're going to be flying blind on how to do an invasion because they've never done a large scale invasion before. Uh, only about 20% of their ground forces can actually be mobilized at any time because most of them are just used as police, basically. And then they have the largest navy in the world as well. But again, it's another faction thing. So it's like Russia's army. And one of the problems with Russia in the beginning of their war with Ukraine is that because it was so factionalized between the different sort of like army units, nobody talked to each other. There was no kind of like coherent decision-making or strategy. People were just kind of doing their own thing. And so there was lots of friendly fire and people going one flank and not and another group not doing their job on their flank. It was just chaos. So you take a huge army that's kind of rubbish and you throw them at something and create complete chaos, all that's going to do is just eradicate your army and you might win, but at what cost? You're going to kill your entire army and you're going to blow up all of Taiwan. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem like a win to me. It seems like a loss. Well, it's interesting to consider when, when you, I mean, I had no idea that that was how the the PLA was was sort of carved up. But it does yeah. seem to be a little bit beneficial to uh, the party to be able to say, oh, you know, they, they're, they're sort of insulated from the potential negative repercussions of, you know, some sort of military, any sort of military action when they can turn to the press and say, Oh no, we didn't. We didn't order that. We had no knowledge that that was going to happen. Oh, it was it was shame. That was shame on them. I mean, just just like the the Nord Stream bombing. Oh, who did it? Oh, we, we, it wasn't yeah. me. It wasn't. It must have been. It was Russia. That's who it was. They did yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. We can all claim I mean, the, ignorance. That's it. I mean, the problem that China has is that it, because the CCP controls everything. It's so difficult for them to go. We didn't know or we didn't order something to happen because the 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 prevailing sentiment is always that if anything happens in China, it's got a CCP stamp on the side of it. Right. You know what I mean? And so for them to turn around and go, Well, we didn't know what was going on, I mean that for the public, they'd be like, Hey, yo, the CCP is 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 breaking up. Like the CCP is not doing so well because that throws the doubt in. So China would have to own it. Um, oh, to project strength that that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. They would have to, you know, if they if they said, you know, we're you know, this is uh, some rogue entity. I, that's that's crazy. That's like heresy. That's like that's like you know, 
reading the Quran in in the Catholic Church. You know, that's crazy, man. You can't say that. You can't say that. The CCP is everywhere. Well, and that's why I'm so. I'm I'm very hesitant to believe anything that comes out of China because they have that death grip on everything. Like why, yeah. you know, to what I was saying about this this journalist that interviewed Chinese soldiers. How is a journalist going to be allowed to interview soldiers that are going to say things like, oh, we're training to attack Americans if right. the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want that to happen? Were they speaking in English or Chinese? I, it, was, uh, it was like a secondhand re- retelling of the story. I, I didn't even hear the... Uh, what, was it an American journal publication or Chinese? Let me see. I will, uh, I will tell you the name because of one of the te- one of the tells is if it's if it's obviously constructed so uh it's for u.s consumption and not chinese consumption that's how you know it's propaganda because it's something they want you to see and not the chinese people to see the name of the podcast is the man in america podcast and it was a uh i don't know if i still have the episode downloaded i'm trying to find out i don't think i do any longer that's what that's what russia does like whenever russia uh make a public statement in english or write something on twitter in english that's not for the russian people that's for you that's what they want you to think and so that's kind of funny that because china benefits from this sort of like rift between the u.s and china and kind of rising tensions because first of all it makes the u.s do something that maybe pisses them off and then because it pisses them off the CCP have got something to make, you know, you guys the enemy. Oh, hey, Chinese people, the U.S. are the enemy. And that gives them a kind of like a get out of jail card for doing some stupid policy that erodes more their rights or something because they need that enemy. Otherwise, whenever there's a problem in China, there's only one person to look at, and that's the CCP because they control everything. So there's a constant narrative to, to make uh, an enemy or something else. Oh, this is Taiwan. We need to get Taiwan. And the people in Taiwan are, are threatening us somehow. So we need to <laughs> make sure we're ready to, to take them out. You know, and that's why we need all these security cameras for your safety. And that's why we're welding up your door so that COVID doesn't get out. So this is constant sort of like... Uh, enemy complex where there's a constant enemy and to, to some degree like western uh governments do that as well you know now they're doing it with russia where everything is caused by russia yeah you know bad weather uh <laughs> rising gas prices rising food um and and even know, i mean even so so like there's there's that political divide also like when uh I mean, this this wasn't really as a result of the Trump administration. I would say it was more a leftist effort. Um, but when Trump was in office, it was all about, oh, Russia's the bad guy. He's a Russian agent. Russia, Russia, Russia. And when uh, when Obama was leaving office, I mean, we should wrap because I could go for another hour on this topic. But just briefly. Mm. Yeah. When... Uh, before Obama left office, he was made aware, and this is just recent information coming out, he was aware 
that, um, I mean, not only was he aware of, of the bribes that were coming to Biden, et cetera, but he was aware that Hillary Clinton was putting together this Russia collusion hoax using her influence in, uh, you know, intelligence agencies to smear Donald Trump to try and, I mean, it's, it's a little hazy if it was an effort just to sort of divert attention away from the fact that she deleted 33,000 emails that were arguably public property. Um, Yeah, for sure. Because, uh, and we'll wrap shortly, but you know, just to touch on that, like, I don't care. Go ahead. uh, (laughs) Because, you know, for them, it's like, they've got to make Trump a bad guy, but it's not enough to say, I don't like Trump because, you know, he hurt my feelings. Or he's a bad person. I don't like him. You know, they have to attach, oh, Russia is involved. God, mm-hmm. that goddamn Russia is involved. He's a foreign people, spy. That's it. That's it. The member berries come out. People go, Russia? <laughs> Soviet Union? Those Joseph Stalin? Stalin? Yeah. Joseph Stalin? <laughs> Trump's one of those guys? Holy bad, fuck. bad. That's it. And people start going, oh my God, I don't like that Trump guy no much. And I hate Russia, bro. I hate Russia big time for everything they stand for, and I would hate living there. But well, but then you can't just use them as a fake tool to just you know that's like the uh, the old 2016 feminazi thing where if you didn't agree with them they would just call you a Nazi straight off the bat. Oh yeah, that's still you going know? strong. That's still going strong, man. And that's the same thing. That's the same thing. Well, you're you're Russia. Uh, you're a Russia person. You like Russia. Yeah, you're you're spreading Russian propaganda. That's right. You, I bet you like uh, Cheberek and vodka. We only, we only like American propaganda over here because this is America. That's right. <laughs> That's right, brother. Well, then, then COVID-19 rolled out, and, and then China was the bad guy. So, like, for the right, China is the bad guy. And yeah. for the left, Russia is the bad guy. And then yeah. for, like, the alt-right... It's the Jews are the bad guys. And, and yeah. for the alt-left, it's, I mean, I don't know, white people or, or something. But there there's always, now you're like, to understand. There's like, always an enemy. To your point, there's, there's got to be this enemy to sort of unite against. That's right. And you know, if we, go, we talk about safe supply, what's the enemy? It's the toxic uh, supply of drugs. That's the enemy. Yeah, well, and God, it was so, it was so interesting because... She was through this whole interview. It's it's the Big Story podcast, uh, and it's an FAQ on uh, safe supply, I believe. I'll you know we'll uh, we'll link it in in the show notes. Um, but the uh, the interesting thing about trying to always push this about how she was trying to push this this political spin is, I mean, of of course, like there's an avenue into the political discussion because. Um, as she mentioned in the interview, it's it's risen to this level of, uh, you know, federal politics in Canada. But uh, there's she was she was constantly trying to spin it like, oh, if if you're not in favor of this safe supply effort, then you're not on the team. And yeah, you, you must want people to die of overdose in the street. Yeah. And if you don't like that, you're not sympathetic. And what are you, a Republican? That's it. You, that's it. What are you like a drug enthusiast? You're like a meth enthusiast. Yeah. You want people to die because you that's it. don't want safe supply. And it was the same thing with COVID. 
You want people right. to die because you're not going to put your mask on or you're not going to get uh, vaccinated. Final words. Where, where do you think, I mean, we've, we've come like consummate professionals. We've come all the way around to Full the topic circle, that, we, that we began with. What do you think what do you think we're going to hear about this safe supply? Uh, uh, what, why can't I think of the word program? <laughs> it was an easy, that's always an easy one. What do you think about the safe? We're, we're going to know about the safe supply program in, in 10 years. Oh, in 10 years, I think it's going to be an unmitigated disaster, bro. And I tell you what, um, be good to revisit this maybe in August because, um, I'm going to Canada this year to see my family and it'd be interesting to get their opinion. So I will ask them for you guys. Uh, it'd be interesting to get their opinion as just normal citizens that don't take fentanyl uh, on what they think about uh, the safe supply situation. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And uh, I'm at Earthbox on Twitter. Uh, 404, I don't know if you have... I know neither of us really participate that heavily in, in social media. No, but of course, um, we've got the website going and we'll be adding uh, relatively regular blog posts as well as uh, links to various articles and, of course, any major sort of uh, documents like the indictments and reports and stuff like that. So I think the best place to uh, check out more of our content is, is going to be on there. Yep, box404.com. That's it. Thank you all very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, don't forget to go listen to the very next episode. We will be back. <laughs>